inside the exhibit halls of the Brooklyn Museum in New York City is an old Dutch house from the 17th century. You can actually go inside and walk around it. And at first glance, it looks exactly the way you would expect a really old Dutch house to look. There is nautical art on the walls. There are carved sculptures on the fireplace mantel. And then you realize that something is slightly off. Everything isn't quite as it seems. Take the large swinging chandelier hanging from the ceiling. From far away, it looks like it's made of crystal. But as you get up close, you realize that instead of glass, each piece of the chandelier is actually a little plastic bottle. It's a nip bottle, like the kind you'd get at the register of a liquor store. And it's made of hundreds of nips hanging neatly in tiers like this upside-down, glowing wedding cake. Here's the thing. Someone's come through and given this house a little redecorating. And that person is an artist named Duke Riley. One of the ideas that I was sort of trying to do with this show was basically create like an entire maritime museum that kind of had that feeling of like an old New England maritime museum, but was, you know, mainly focused just on plastic. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. You may have heard the saying, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Well, for Duke Riley, your trash becomes his art. More after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. If you've ever been to a dusty souvenir shop in a little seaside town, you've probably seen mosaics made out of seashells, maybe arranged in patterns of little hearts, you know, covering the lid of a trinket box. Artist Duke Riley has his own version of this, but his mosaics are big, beautiful, and colorful. These huge octagon-shaped works of art with mesmerizing symmetrical patterns that radiate out from the center. Seeing them from far away on the walls of the Brooklyn Museum you can get lost in these swirling patterns, these fluorescent pinks and blues and greens. And you get up close, and you can see that the entire mosaic is made from garbage. Bottle caps, drinking straws, tampon applicators. This is Duke Riley's style. It's an echo of the familiar, the historical. 
old nautical art, the pirate's life, but with a little bit of a wink and a little bit of a middle finger. I've been a fan of Duke Riley's work for a long time. We moved to New York around the same time and ended up sort of in similar spots in Brooklyn. We might have actually been in the same building in Greenpoint at one point. Like I was working out of uh, 61 Greenpoint for a number of years. No way. When were you there and in what space? Like 2000, oh God, 11, 10, 11. I distinctly remember one of Duke's projects making a big splash back in 2007. More on that later. So I was really excited to talk to him and ask him about how he got started making the incredible work he makes. Growing up in Massachusetts, you know, there's a million museums to do with the Revolutionary War, you know, or maritime museums and whatnot. And looking at history and looking at the past as a way to sort of talk about issues that are currently happening has always been just a way that I process information. You can see this all at work at the center of Duke's Brooklyn Museum show. The show includes a collection of 200 pieces that are the color of ivory. They look just like bone and are covered with these delicate line drawings, drawings of men in prim waistcoats or piloting elaborate machines. They were all inspired by this nautical art form called scrimshaw, which came out of the whaling industry in the 1800s. When whalers were on long voyages, they would have a a lot of downtime. And one of the byproducts of the whale oil industry was that there were all these teeth and bones you know, that people would make things out of. Uh, Some things that were like very functional, uh, just, you know, the way we make things out of plastic. Now, the teeth were something that the whalers would uh, engrave and decorate while they were at sea. Back in the day, whale bones were made into all kinds of everyday objects. Tools used to crimp the edges of pies, strips to provide structure inside women's corsets, all sorts of stuff. But some of these pieces had images engraved on them. That's what made them scrimshaw. And often these images were of people. So a lot of the people that are now kind of uh, immortalized on those teeth in maritime museums around the world are like, you know, sea captains and prominent members of whaling towns that were ship owners and things like that. The ones that were responsible for uh, and, and got rich off of this. It was this thing where a group of people almost completely decimated an entire species of of whales, you know, off the face of the earth. And they knew they were doing that because they kept having to go further and further out to sea, chasing them. The whaling industry is obviously not the juggernaut it once was. But that idea of an extractive industry focused specifically on oil and then the art that came out of it, it stayed in the back of Duke's mind. One time I was at the beach and I saw like a piece of plastic that was actually like a deck brush from a boat that looked almost like bone. And I reached down and, you know, picked it up because I thought it was bone and it ended up just being this deck brush. You know, I guess I started thinking then at that point in time, like the way there is sort of this connection between the whale oil industry and scrimshaw and the fossil fuel industry and and Mm. plastic. So instead of using whalebone for his scrimshaw, Duke had other ideas. Duke's life and his art in New York City have always revolved around the water. After he moved to the city in the late 90s, he spent a lot of time in industrial waterfront areas in Brooklyn, 
places like Green Point and Red Hook, and a lot of uninhabited spots with abandoned buildings, places that hadn't been developed yet. Naturally, a lot of those places, because they're not like public beaches or something like that, there's nobody like going there and cleaning them. That is where a lot of the plastic trash would end up. Also, over the years, I saw increasing amounts of too. Duke started repurposing some of these found objects pretty early in his work. Like in 2006, when he used them to build a speakeasy underneath some concrete pilings under the Belt Parkway. It was around this time when I first heard about Duke Riley's work. In 2007, he did this incredible project where he reconstructed an old Revolutionary War submarine called the Turtle. It was built out of wood, and he rode it into the New York Harbor and headed straight for a cruise ship. The Queen Mary II, no less. It was a comment on the Patriot Act. It was a kind of quasi-reenactment of the Revolutionary War. The police did not see the artistry or the nuance. I still remember the headline on the cover of the New York Post. It read in big block letters, Sub Moron. Getting a full like New York Post front page uh, like piece, the the it's gotta. There's some pride in that. There's gotta yeah. be some some joy. It was it was all three papers. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the Post really kind of won with that. You know, as the Post does, they always sort of win with the headlines. So you know. yeah. yeah, yeah. But okay, back to Duke's modern day version of Scrimshaw. What I started doing was collecting a lot of the the plastic that I was finding around the the New York waterways, like around. Garrett's Beach and mm. Mill Basin and Jamaica mm. Bay and Dead Horse Bay and, you know, all these different areas. Duke would collect all kinds of plastic debris. Think containers of Drano or laundry detergent, uh, plastic yard flamingos. And then he'd take them back to his studio in Brooklyn, treat them to make them look like ivory, and then paint them with these really fine line drawings with India ink. And when it came to subject matter, he knew just what to draw. Instead of looking at, you know, whalers and sea captains and ship owners, I was thinking more about like CEOs of single use plastic companies, you know, some of the larger uh, fossil fuel companies and, uh, you know, the lobbyists for the single use plastics and various politicians that prevent like plastic bag bans from going through and stuff like that. Have you heard from any of those people or like their lawyers or PR firms? No, I haven't. <laughs> I, you know, I always sort of expect that's going to happen, you know, and but uh, so far, not yet. You know, there's still maybe more to come, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Scrimshaw inspired pieces are the center of Duke's show, this maritime museum within the Brooklyn Museum. The old house is actually part of the museum's collection, but the plastic objects inside of it are all Duke. And Duke's sort of fake museum even has its own cheeky name, the Polyestyrene Maritime Museum. Another part of the show is a glass case full of colorful homemade fishing lures. You know, I was thinking a lot about just the idea of what a fishing lure is and its history. You know, it's like a 5,000-year-old invention. Humans up to that point had, you know, hunted and maybe trapped animals, but this was like the first time that they were actually like using the psychology of like another animal and its desires against itself. But of course, all is not as it seems. And Duke's fishing lures are made out of plastic toothbrushes, hair combs, kazoos, mechanical pencils, probably the things that fish actually bump into all the time. A lot of these objects that are 
in the case are things that people buy for various reasons for uh, you know, convenience and how these things are marketed to us on some of our very basic primal instincts, whether it's to nurture a child or whatever it may be, and to do it in the most convenient way. Duke's art is mesmerizing. It's playful. It is genuinely funny and cool looking. And when you see these hundreds of toothbrushes and bottle caps and straws in his pieces, and think about all the stuff that you use that will probably end up washing up on a beach somewhere. It's enough to give you a little stab of agony. But Duke says it's only part of the story. Is there anything you hope people leave thinking about or questions you hope to like inspire in people with your latest work? There's so much emphasis on people recycling or using less plastic and all of that is good. And I think people should try to do their best. But I don't think that that alone is going to solve the problem because I, mm. I think that, uh, you know, so much of the stuff that we put into recycling doesn't even actually get recycled. And I think that it's, you know, important for people to go and not feel like some sort of shame about like, oh, I should be doing more. I mean, sure, it's great. You should always be trying to do more. But we, we need to focus on the, the people that are actually responsible. You can visit Duke Riley's show, Death to the Living, Long Live Trash, and the Polly S. Tyrene Maritime Museum at the Brooklyn Museum. The show runs till April 23rd, 2023. Duke also has a tattoo shop so you can get his work uh, more personally uh, inscribed. Check it out at East River Tattoo. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. This episode was produced by Amanda McGowan. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder-Arnold, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire Seuss, Devin DeComo, Chica Okoye, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There is a link in the episode description. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. And I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I'll see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex, of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? 
That's Decodering, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by the New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one.